0: Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
1: This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. It's a podcast about workplace culture, psychology, and life. Hello, I'm Bruce Taisley. Thank you for joining me today. You might have noticed that it's not been a lot of episodes since the end of last year, and that's largely because I was a little bit worried about repeating myself or just going over the same ground again and not offering something new. We're in such a unique moment in work right now where we've kind of got into new rhythms, but the thing that I hear from people repeatedly, whether it's bosses, whether it's team members, whether it's people who don't necessarily see themselves as having a, a career, but they've got a job. I, I hear from pretty much everyone I talk to, they say, yeah, work doesn't quite feel the same. And to some extent, these people who are very happy about that, they they believe that they've got more balance in their life. Work is a less substantial part of their identity now than it was before. They they feel like they've reached a happy equilibrium. But there's a lot of other people saying, I kind of miss the laughter at work. I'm not enjoying it as much. You know, there used to be a good culture here. And, you know, it's a bit it's a bit it's a bit black and white now. I was, I'm not really enjoying it in the same way. So that was my objective, really, as I've sat down and I've tried to think about people I'd want to talk to over the next few episodes. I wanted to try and think of what I could do to add something to that discourse add something to us understanding how work has changed but doesn't necessarily mean it's changed for the worse. Or if we do think that we've lost something, how could we seek to get it back? So that's what I'm going to be focusing on over the next few episodes. And I was delighted to kick it off with this conversation today. Amy Gallo is a contributing editor at the Harvard Business Review. She's also the author of two books, most recently her new book, How, Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People, and she hosts Harvard Business Review's Women at Work podcast. My previous discussion with Amy, which I think was in the midst of the pandemic, was one of the most thoughtful, stimulating, challenging discussions where I, I left it feeling I'd learned so much, but also I'd my opinion had massively evolved in areas. I I just felt like it was such a a powerful dialogue. I was really excited to have another discussion with Amy at a period, maybe a couple of years on, where we've learned a bit more about what the future of work looks like. And we know that we don't necessarily have all the answers. We're, We're learning as we go along. Amy's written this wonderful new book, which is Getting Along, which is this field guide to dealing with difficult people, whether it's your insecure boss, whether it's a a passive aggressive colleague, um, she probably provides the kind of advice that if... A toxic person at work is colouring your life, is, is giving you the, the dread on Sunday night and you just don't know who to turn to. Your partner or your friends are giving you advice, but it doesn't seem to be hitting the spot. This book is, you know, the survival guide to dealing with those things. And it's a really, really fascinating prompt for thinking about how important the relationships are at work and why dealing with them and improving them is such an important part. I really loved this discussion. I'm kind of, I'm blown away with it every time I have a, a conversation with Amy because she's so knowledgeable in these areas that I leave thinking, wow, I've, I've sort of learned 50 things and I've got 50 more questions to follow up. Um, so it's a really wonderful discussion. So lucky f- to get the opportunity to talk to her. And I hopefully you're going to get as much from this as me as, you know, It's a discussion about two people trying to make sense of how the world of work is changing. Here's Amy Gallo. She's the author of Getting Along and she was my guest today. Amy, so lovely to chat to you again. I think the, the conversation we last had was uh, a couple of years ago, and I got lovely feedback from people. It was sort of a state of where work was in that moment, actually. It was this sort of interesting reflection on where we are and what's happening. And and I thought maybe a, an interesting place to start here might be a similarly broad question, really, um, a question, where do you think the state of relationships and the state of work mm. is right now. And, you know, yeah. how would you assess it?
0: Oh, you know, I think we're in a real state of flux right now in terms of coming out of the pandemic. I think the pandemic did a couple of things when it comes to relationships at work. One, I think for those relationships that were strong, where we had bonds with our coworkers, where the relationships were positive, helped helped us do all the things we know research shows we can do with, when we have relationships at work, you know, better productivity, better performance, more resilience. I think those relationships got even stronger because we went through something really tough together. And I I certainly personally feel much closer to my colleagues who I already valued our relationship prior, prior to January 2020. The downside I think is that the relationships that had fractures and like many things in the pandemic, things that weren't working well really fell apart. And so I think the ways we work in terms of, you know, remote work now, hybrid work, as well as the excessive cognitive load that we've been carrying for the past few years in terms of stress, grief, loss, and the increasing uh sort of contentiousness, polarization that we see in our politics and society has caused a real strain on many of our relationships. And I think a lot of people, what I hear from a lot of people is really struggling with, is it my responsibility to try to improve these relationships or do I just dismiss these people who are really causing me a deep amount of stress and anxiety because of their behavior? I, you know, my book is very clear. I lean into the, you know, take responsibility because it's going to help you ultimately. But I also have a lot of empathy for people who are like, I don't have the patience. I don't have the compassion. I'm worn out and I don't want to invest in these relationships that are, that are hard for me, especially relationships where in which I'm being dehumanized or belittled. Why would I invest any time or, or energy into them? I don't know does that resonate with what you're seeing? Oh it it absolutely does.
1: I I find us we're in a, a zone a situation at the moment where the 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 feedback I get from people all the time is number one people say um work doesn't feel the same. We we're, we're in a situation where work maybe we're sort of reflecting on the fact that I I think there's a danger we can rose tint where we were with work because I think if I was to sit down with you in 2019 and have a discussion about the state of work in 2019, I think the the thing that we would probably say is that, look, you know, things aren't right right now. People are overwhelmed, overburdened. People are showing an, an inability to cope. And, um, and, you know, there's, there's schisms and, and there were stress faults in the system that were sort of, uh, that were starting to show themselves. And I think, you know, so th- there's a real danger that we can end up rose tinting where we are and, and, um, where we were before. But the, the position I think we find ourselves in now is that, a lot of people are saying that work doesn't feel the same. Work doesn't feel cohesive. Um, I think there's a lot more articulation of the dissatisfaction that people have got with with the way that things are going. And no one seems to be happy. And so that's why I'm so intrigued. You know, I hear a number of things. I hear, I did a session with the company last week and someone said to me, um, I've got enough friends in the real world. I don't need friends at work. Okay, right. <sighs> really interesting. Yes. And then I had had someone who contacted me last week and I was, I I wrote a a newsletter post about cohesive cultures and he said, um, I'm introverted. I don't want to, I don't want to go into the office. I don't want to be around other people. Now I can see, I can see the, the way to defend both of those positions. Um, you know, and it makes me hesitate. So I wonder at times, am I an agent of something toxic by sort of insisting something different? And so, Look, I think what we're seeing is we're seeing people articulate things that they didn't express before. I don't think there's yeah. like a generational break in, in people, yeah. but it begs this really fundamental question. question, What are the things worth fighting for? And how do we articulate to people who don't see the value in them yeah. why they're worth fighting for? And that's why I'm so intrigued yeah. in your take on it. Really.
0: You know, let me share something, it's because my Co host on the Women at Work podcast, Amy Bernstein, said something right at the beginning of the pandemic. And she was talking about gender inequities, but I think it really applies to what we're talking about in terms of relationships. You know, she said, it's as if we've always been in a dark room and the pandemic made us turn on the lights and we saw the cracks in the ceiling, the cobwebs in the corner, and we couldn't, t- now we can't turn them off. And I think that's right, is that there was lots, there, there's a danger of thinking work was fine before or even good. But it wasn't. We just had the lights off, <laughs> and so I think now that we're sort of seeing things more clearly, and we have all this added stress um, on top of it. I have real empathy for those folks who say, "I don't. Why, why would I invest in my friend in building friendships mm-hmm. at work? I'm an introvert. Why would I ever go to the office?" And yet, there is decades of data <laughs> that argue we are better off for having friendships at work. Now, does that mean you need to, you know, have barbecues with your co-workers on the weekends and go out to dinner with them every night? No, it just means we have something that's called in, in the academic literature, like companionate love, meaning that we actually care for one another. We're invested in one another's lives. That doesn't necessarily mean an investment of time. It just means that we actually have positive, warm feelings toward one another. And the research is clear that when that is the case, we are better performers, we are more productive, we're able to face challenges more easily, and our well being is stronger. I'm really struck
1: by the couple of things that you said there. You know, the, the, the light going on in the room, I think, has a parallel. The, the way that um, generations, I think Gen X's and maybe some millennials to some extent, I think, you know, certainly in the UK, we saw massive consumptions of alcohol amongst people at that age uh, in previous generations you know they used to go out in the uk let me tell you people used to go out and it was like a, a a national tradition that people would go out and seeking oblivion and i think you know it's very easy for us to look at subsequent generations gen z and 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 think oh they're, they're far more god they're so f- far more fragile but actually one way to interpret it is that they're not just willing, they're not willing to self-medicate to hide away the way they're feeling. Right. Really interesting. So a reframing of these people are no fundamentally, their experience is no different, but they're just far more tuned into the way they're feeling and trying to rather than uh, medicate against those things, actually confront them. Right. That, that's the way that I would see the generational dis- disconnect there. And And I think to some extent that light going on in the workplace is a sort of really critical reminder that, you know, these things were always there. People were bullied by their bosses, intimidated by their bosses, had Sunday night scaries. All of those things existed before. They haven't been invented now. Yes. One of the things that really struck me is another commentator who uh, I sort of really value her perspective, Anne Ann Helen Peterson. Um, Her and her partner mm. wrote a book uh, last year. And one of the things they said in one of the interviews about it is they said, um, they talked about how bosses couldn't force you to uh, to have interactions and friendships at work you could go into work and it could be a transaction and you could you know you could just turn up wear your headphones do your job do the thing that you were being contracted to do now of course you can i I find that a deeply isolated Mm -hmm. and unhappy way to spend 40 hours a week that, you know, it's, it's almost like being a coal miner of knowledge work. You're going in, you're, do, you're spending a, a completely solitary way to pass your life effectively, the, you know, the, the, the greater part of yeah. your life. Um, but it, to some extent, it speaks to an idea that maybe the transaction that work represents no longer feels like a fair transaction from people 's perspective, and I just Correct. wonder if i I love the companion at love idea and this notion, which I think was Sigal albao wasn 't it, and who passed away last year but the the notion that um, the notion that actually look whether you 're firefighters, bar workers, office workers, having some fondness affinity cohesion with the people around you is just a better way to spend your life you know and and a better way to do your work. Um, Does this go to the heart of an idea that for people entering the workforce now, work represents such a one-sided transaction that they're never going to be able to aspire to own a house, they're never going to be able to aspire to achieve what their parents did, that to some extent... Gifting more of themselves, gifting that sort of friendship
0: element, feels a step too far. Is there something about that? In this you know, moment? and I agree. I agree. Like it feels unfair, right? To say, oh, we want you to show up as your whole selves. We want you to bring. We want you know. We, we're going to give you all these perks so you don't. You can do your laundry and have your childcare at work, and everything will be centered around work. And you're going to give us. You're going to give us so much, and and I I can see how it feels like an unfair trade, especially when we think about. The amount of stress and anxiety that work produces for many of us, it just, it just doesn't it's, It doesn't seem fair. The one thing I will point out is, and this is, you know, the, the research on generational differences is really interesting. There are some people who really dig in and are like, you know, Gen X is very different than millennials and then different than Gen Z. There are others, for example, Peter Capelli at Wharton, who says it's not about what generation you grew up it's about an age so if you're in your 20s you're going to feel the same way whether you're it's you're in your 20s now or you're in your 20s 20 years ago or 40 years ago and I'll be honest I went into work my first job and had no interest in making friends I had a ton of friends from college I had a ton of friends in my where I lived in San Francisco and like I just was like why would I make friends here that's that makes no sense to me and it did feel very transactional I show up I do my work but what inevitably happened is I because you spend time at work, usually more time than you do with anyone else, including your family, I made friends. And, I, and those are friends. I mean, I think about that first job out of college. I still am in touch with two people I worked with and not regularly, but I care about them. I care about their lives. I'm happy to hear how they're doing. And so I think I get the hesitancy. But yet, I just think it's inevitable. And I think we, again, from research, know it feels, it ultimately feels good for us. And so I think we have to, there is a, certainly, there is a lot to be said about the unfair transaction of work right now and whether employers have just unreasonably high expectations for employees and don't actually give enough in return. I think there's a lot to be said to that. Separate from that, I think we benefit from having relationships and I don't think we have relationships at work because it's good for the organization, it's good for our boss, it's good for the CEO. I think we do it because it's good for our daily well-being. And that that to me is why I wrote the book is that I want I wanted people to have less stress in their daily interactions with others, feel more resilient, feel more, um, you know, just sort of feel more joy at, in being in contact and these dynamics that they have with their colleagues.
1: I'm really struck with something you said there. Um, you know, I remember working in one place where, our friendships yeah. at work felt like an act of subversion, actually, um, against the bosses, you know, not an act of concession, which I think to some extent is the way it's perceived now. I've, I've worked two places, one Mexican restaurant where most definitely yes. there was a sort of prisoners camaraderie and uh, another place, um, in, in the radio industry where actually it was the, the bond between us. That we saw as solidarity against, you know, inept governance, and so friendship. I don't think is conceding something, but I'd love to hear the, the no. proof, the research, why we should feel that this is the case.
0: Yeah, I mean, there, Gallup has done polls for years about friendships at work, and people who who say they have a friend at work are perform higher are more productive, tend to be more resilient in the face of setbacks at work. There's a, a really interesting piece of research from a group of professors at Rutgers that show that people who say that they're be- they have a best friend at work actually get higher performance ratings than people who say they don't. Right? So we know that this is this is helping. We also know that it, the, the there's a Harvard study that looked at decades of of it's called a what was it long? It's a longitudinal study. I cannot remember. I'm not recalling the name exactly right now, but it's a famous study out of Harvard that looked at the quality of life for people. And it was, it's just straight, very clear from that research that the quality of our relationships, including the quality of relationships with the people we work with, determine the quality of our life. So the more we say our, our relationships are fulfilling, we have enough of them, that the more we're likely to enjoy Life and 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 exceed in you know succeed in life. Whether that's however you define that, people tend to earn more money when they have more relationships in their life. Um, they tend to report more satisfaction. Right, there's just so much upside. And I think the argument goes the other way, which is that if we look at the research around incivility at work, and I'm not saying that you know not going to work and not having friends but but oftentimes the opposite of having friends is that we have very cold relationships with our coworkers and incivility at work has lots of lots of problems for people uh, same same measures in terms of performance productivity but also in terms of mistakes We tend teams where they're when they've witnessed, they don't even have to be the the target of the incivility when they've witnessed incivility are more likely to make mistakes. This research has been done in um, the medical field. So sometimes those mistakes actually have serious life or death consequences for people. Um, We're also, you know, more likely, um, you know, to disengage from work, to feel lonely. There's just so much downside to not treating one another with that companionate love, that I think it goes both ways. The upsides are huge and the downsides are bad enough that, again, you don't have to be best friends with everyone, but to have at least cordial, um, caring relationships at work are, It is just – I think there's no – it's hard to argue against those, really.
1: It begs that this, this question, really, uh, the impact that remote work has had on this, because I suspect – All great sitcoms were people trapped together and, and, you know, maybe all great workplace friendships were the fact that to some extent we were sitting next to these people or sitting opposite from these people and and unlikely friendships sprung up as a result. Now we're working in a far more remote or disconnected way and work is a transaction for a lot of people, you know, you're, you're getting things done. Are there any routes to creating friendships in that place or is there a lesson from the firms that are broadly remote first but they still articulate the importance of face-to-face contact is there something irreplaceable in being around each other in person at least to some extent
0: there are this i mean there are so many opinions on this all of which <laughs> don't agree right? the, the and I, I i think about my own house, right? So my husband and I both worked from home during the pandemic. Prior to the pandemic, I had worked from home most of the time. I usually went up to um, Harvard Business Review's office one day a week, sometimes just twice a month. And I'm an introvert. My husband's an extreme extrovert. We both were at home and I was like, this is awesome. I was like, I feel so close to my colleagues because they're now all at home. We're having these funny chats on Slack. A couple of colleagues and we started sending each other gifts. Like we set up this gift exchange. I was like, this is great. I feel closer to my colleagues than I've ever before. And my poor husband was like, this is miserable. I cannot wait to go back into the office. And as soon as he was able to, he went. And I think for him, it was irreplaceable, right? It was, it was hard For him to have those connections in the same way but it's because of who he is not the nature of humanity right now now we do know lots of things like the way when I interact with you on video versus in person it's not firing the same places in my brain right there is there's we have more empathy when we see someone in person we um, do send a sense of stronger connection but it doesn't mean that that's has to be the case. And in fact, now that I have a choice about to go whether to go in the office or not, I rarely go. And I don't think it's impacted my relationships because I still have phone calls, we still have, you know, virtual coffees, and for me that works. Now, I probably have some colleagues who are like, "I wish Amy would come in a little bit more. It'd be nice to see her. I'd feel closer to her." And I get that, but I think it's really about the individual and what they what they need, less about sort of a universal rule of what what works. That said, I have empathy for the the leaders who are like, I need a strong culture. I need people to be collaborating. It makes sense to have them in, in person. But I do think that feeling of we I was able to do my job for two years from remotely. And now you're telling me I have to be in person. I think it does that builds to the injustice I think we were talking about earlier and the, what feels like the unfair transaction that especially with places where they're not allowing any flexibility. You know, my husband actually works one day from home and he loves that. You know, I think he I think if he had his druthers, they would all be in the office every day just again because of his extroversion. But the, giving the flexibility for people to still live their lives, make the choices they want and give them the autonomy. We I mean we Years and years we've been talking about the importance of autonomy for employees, and I think that's one of the main issues that doesn't come up enough is that, that the discussion around hybrid, in-person, remote, if we're, we're really stemming people's sense of autonomy, and that, that is very detrimental to their engagement at work and, and just sort of their sense of self and, and, and their satisfaction.
1: You talk a lot. You sort of you've got a field guide of of dealing with brilliant, a wonderful range of different situations. And I guess at the heart of it, it's trying to uh, make your own accommodations and to to understand to put right your side of the street. What's
0: the word? Yeah, clean up your side of the street.
1: Clean side your side of the street. You know, a, a difficult person. Of course, there's two aspects of it. It's how you respond. It's it's um, to to that as as much as anything. Um, the interesting thing for me is that you, you talk about psychological safety. You talk about sort of this this holy grail that we all seek in good workplace cultures: this ability to speak candidly to each other without fear of consequence. Mm-hmm. Um, and it begs the question with me that psychological safety is, is largely about. Um, Productive disagreement to some extent, as as, as well as speaking up, it's also being able to say with respect, I don't agree with what you're saying. That's right. And the question for me is whether remote work... You know as witnessed as caricatured by that blank stare that we've all learned to get used to, I was on a call yesterday with three people who you could I could see all of them were doing emails while I was doing yeah. it and in fact you 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 give a similar example about someone talking um who you turned it turned out someone was offering him cookies off screen or cake <laughs> off screen and uh, but you know we we all learn to read that indifference that blank stare as yeah someone's just Going through their messages and they're not paying attention to me. Mm-hmm. And overall, what I worry then about remote work and hybrid working is actually it's it's an extension of a trend that was already there. Work was filled with lies. You know, work was filled with we pretended to pay attention in meetings when we weren't paying attention. And all we've done now is we've been afforded the opportunity. In the old days, you might try and look at your phone discreetly under the table. Right? <laughs> like, you know, like you would try to reply to a few messages while nodding sagely and having a question ready. Now that pretence is even easier. Yeah, And all of these things make me worry that if – psychological safety is productive disagreement we've we've headed towards something worse which is the it's not a, an absence of psychological safety but sort of it's an indifference it's like a non participation people in surveys people are asked what impact can you have on your job and the vast majority of people say i'm not responsible for any decisions in my work and i have no input into those decisions yeah. and if that's where we are that work is just completely disempowered
0: mm-hmm. it makes me really
1: sad about the state of work and and worry if it can be saved really
0: yeah yeah i mean it's i i see those studies and i i also feel really discouraged and and I, i'll be honest i mean even while we're recording this right we you and i are little boxes on a screen and which is wonderful cuz we get to record this and see one another while we're doing it but it makes me feel less human even though we're very engaged right it's it's just not it's not the same i will say it's not the same as sitting in a room having this conversation and i think we end up having less empathy for one another we end up giving each other Less often give each other the benefit of the doubt because we don't have the full context of, of what's going on. So, so yes, I think it, it's concerning and it, it can increase that, that transactional nature. But I think forcing people to show up in an office isn't going to solve that, right? Like at, to your point... You know, it, it's, it's, it wasn't like we were, weren't pretending before. And I think the pretending, right? The pretending is like attention, but the pretending is also caring. Like a lot of the pretending I saw pre pandemic and certainly now is like, I, I pretend I care about what this team is doing or I pretend I care about what the company is doing. And so that's not, I don't think that's going to be resolved by putting people in the same place. I think there's other levers we have to pull and I know I'm biased on this, but I think the relationships are a big one. So maybe I don't care if the company, you know, sells x number of widgets this quarter, but maybe I do care about Bruce and his life and whether he's happy at work and whether things are going well for him. And and that for for me personally, that is very engaging. And so you know and, and to your point before about the mexican restaurant and the radio job like the, it, there's also it helps us make sense of our work life to be in relationship with other people to understand what's fair what's not to especially for people women people of color we exchange information about how much you paid did that person undermine you in a meaning right like there's so much we get from it that that helps us um just Understand ourselves in the context of this job. And ultimately, I think helps us engage. Like a lot of times when I'm, you know, about to miss a deadline, which I happens more often than I wish, I, the thing that I feel bad, and I'm not like, oh, the company, I'm going to hurt the company. I feel about like, I'm like the editor who's waiting for that. I feel so bad. I know she has two young kids and I'm going to make her edit it at 11 o'clock at night. And oh my gosh, and I, she's a good friend of mine. And why would I do that? You know, so it's, those are the—and I don't want to say we should work out of guilt, but it's those connections, I think, that keep us tethered to the work in the way that that where we find meaning. And this idea that we should care about the company or the CEO, I think is just—I I think that's foolish, to be to be honest. And I think instead, we should be focused on things like, am I producing good work? Does it feel good to me to reach that deadline to produce a quality product? do does it feel good to me to work side by side with these colleagues does it help when i actually do something well and we do it together as a team does that feel positive and, and joyful and fulfilling to me i think those are the ways we're going to get people to engage and build cultures not a sort of loyalty to a company
1: what i take from that is actually it's the emotional fabric of work that makes it fulfilling while we might perceive that work is a rational transaction, it's the emotional part that lives with us and and endures with us. and And friendships are that emotional part. And then it makes me sad that to try and articulate that to a group of the workforce who maybe don't perceive the value of it. It makes me sad that firstly, the case needs to be made, but then it makes me struggle of, how do we make that case to people? How do I, do I make that? That person who was in the room with me last week saying, I don't want friends at work. Gosh, mm-hmm. um, I didn't, I, you know, I probably gave an answer, but how do I answer that? Or um, <laughs> right. how, do, how do I say to someone, you need to care about your fellow person? And I, 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 it's really interesting because it makes me, makes me sad that I need to make the case for it. And then, and then humiliated that I can't make the case for it
0: what would you say to that yeah. that person well you know i did this workshop with a with a group of senior leaders in in this nonprofit years ago and i remember this one guy was sitting in the corner and they didn't work actually they were this was a huge organization they didn't work together it wasn't a team it was just they had come together for this workshop and so they didn't know each other that well and he um yeah, I could tell he was not enjoying the workshop. <laughs> like, it was giving me sort of stern looks the whole time. He was taking notes, but not like—it it looked like he was, like, recording something, not, like, jotting down interesting things, I was saying. And at one point, he raised his hand, and he said, you have used the word trust seven times. And I think that we were, like, 20 minutes into the workshop. You've used the word trust seven times, and I just want to make clear, trust has no place in work. We don't do work because we want to trust our colleagues. We do work because we have a job to do. We don't need trust to to succeed. It was really, I mean, it was shocking, and i i was I was embarrassed for him. I was also, mm. I thought, I I'm like, what a way to destroy your relationships with everyone in this room. You just told them you don't care if they mm. trust you, and you don't trust them, and and you know. Again, decades of research would disagree that we don't that we need that we don't need trust, right? We do need trust, but I, it it did make me into your, you know, a, attendee who says I don't need friends I, I, at work. I think those are, I think fortunately, those are the outliers, and I did have to sort of accept. I'm not going to convince this guy about trust, and I did offer. I was like, I'll send you some articles. I'll send you yeah. some research. I don't think he ever read them. I'm sure he still has that same feeling. So I think if we have to focus on the majority of people who do understand and do strive to not feel lonely at work, to have connections, and maybe they don't want to have best friends, that's fine. And and again, they don't have to have relationships outside work with, with these folks. But I think most of us understand that need for human connection and feel it. Right, and when we don't have it, we feel lonely in our jobs. And so, I think we're not going to convince everyone, but I think the, I think most people have an a, an innate sense that they want to connect. It's it's why we have the water, water cooler conversations. It's why, whether you're on Slack or some other instant message platform, people are sending jokes and memes. And like, I think people get that. Most people get that we need that. And for those who are extreme introverts or extreme skeptics, I hope they'll come along at some point, but I'm not sure we necessarily want to invest time in in those real outliers. Does that make sense to you?
1: It really does. There's something you mentioned a couple of uh, answers ago about the experience of people of color or women in the office. And there's there's a really interesting conundrum I find here. there was another book that I really enjoyed was uh, Narina Hertz's Lonely Century, and she spoke specifically about the impact of micro interactions. The, the very fact of going into your local laundry laundrette, or you going into you're chatting to the barista, you don't think it impacts you, but it does because it removes. Yeah. I guess a degree of ego from your interactions. You're no longer thinking that you're the main character. You're recognizing that these other people here. And so those micro interactions seem to play a part, even if we don't recognize they play a part. And I definitely know I'm someone who pivots between introvert and extrovert. I've got degrees of both, but I know that if I have a day without speaking to anyone, I've become increasingly introverted. If I have a day chatting to lots of people, I've become incredibly extroverted. So it's really interesting for me, but simultaneously you know if we're going to try and empathize with the position of different groups in the office and maybe sort of underrepresented groups in the office the the one thing that came out of the research during the pandemic was that um young women in the office reported feeling much happier because they weren't being sexualized by colleagues um people of color were were much happier working from home because they weren't dealing with comments about hair, about parents, about their attitude inviting them to smile more. You know, the, we, we were sort of witnessing these things. And so, you know, I'm really interested From the perspective of those particular audiences you mentioned, where would you sit on this? Uh, How do we perceive these sort of different aspects that being around other people seems advantageous, but also for for those groups, being around other people was the thing that made the job a burden?
0: Yeah, well, and I think there's lots of studies, including the McKinsey and and LeanIn.org put out a a report called Women in the Workplace every year. And for several years, it's shown the um, the data on the experience of being the only so if you're the only woman black woman if you're the only muslim man and you're whatever it is being that that experience is incredibly challenging right really really detrimental to your well-being for many of the reasons you just explained right the the subtle comments the um looks the sort of what what um Dr. Tiffany Jana calls subtle acts of exclusion right the microaggressions and so I think it's the telling someone who's an only just make friends, you'll be fine, right? Is is not the right message? That's I think that that's um, counterproductive and 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 quite um, damaging. And I think I I think you know for people who feel more comfortable working from home, again, I that I'll go back to what I said about the flexibility. I think we need to give people autonomy to make those decisions. What I was alluding to before is the collusion, the the productive collusion that happens between um, people who maybe aren't the only, but are in the minority in the office who get to share information about what what those experiences are like. Did did so and so say something to you in the meeting? How did you interpret that? And I do think those connections are very valuable for people who aren't um, don't have access to traditional power or not are from or not from. The dominant group. And so I think we need to be careful in our messaging. And actually, there's a HBR author, Jodi Ann Burry, who wrote a very popular article um, that actually went huge a couple years ago called Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome and she actually has a TED talk where she talks about the myth of authenticity at work and as a black woman being told to show up as herself is just a complete lie right like we want you to show up as yourself but we want you to show up as this like smoothed out version that works really well with white dominant culture and white dominant male culture and so i think we we do when we think about encouraging people to have friendships and connections we're not, this is not forced authenticity. This is not forced connection. The introvert in, in your workshop last week, right? Like, we're not going to say, well, just break through that and just make friends. You'll be fine, right? We have to allow people to make their own choices while being aware of the biases and prejudices that exist and then making it possible for them to find the connections that they want. You know, I think about forming ERGs, right? Employee resource groups where people um, who share an identity factor can connect, right? Just And and just a, a, being supportive about giving people time and space to make the connections. And I, it, it, something just popped into my head. I talked to a colleague or to a friend last week who works in a small office and, and works for the classic Insecure Boss, which is one of the archetypes I mentioned in the book. And I was trying to help her out. and And she said, you know what my boss told me the other day? She said I was too social at work, and I said, "Yeah, because your connections with others are a threat to her." And wow. so, I think we have to really make sure we we're not doing that, right? We're not discouraging people from having those connections. Um, we're giving them the space and time to create them, and we're modeling them, right? We want our managers to be connected with people as well. Like that, it, we we want to see that companionate love. Showing up every day in our in our interactions because it'll encourage others to do it if they choose to do it.
1: I guess it would be a good prompt for you to do it. But how do you advise someone? Your whole book is how do you advise insecure bosses or you know hostile colleagues and and just I guess <laughs> brilliantly giving you. A a lighthouse in the storm, a a place to sort of try and imagine, okay, right, I I can try that, I could try that. So in that example there, give us a worked example. What do you do if a boss says you're too social? It's clearly speaking to their own insecurities, but what adaptations would you advise people to make on their side of the street?
0: So in that case, I I certainly not even respond to that feedback. I think that feedback's not, like you said, it's about the boss, not my friend and I think the the to engage in it would be a mistake because there's no one are you going to stop socializing with your coworkers? no we like that like that's not that's not a reasonable request Um, but there's something underlying it and I think this is when you're dealing with someone who you suspect is insecure you'll never know for sure you can suspect but that you it's you want to think about how do I make sure that they don't see me as a threat so that my conversation with our colleague doesn't become something, a source of stress for my boss, but it's just a sort of normal course of, of work. And unfortunately, what the research shows, and I, this is my one of my least favorite studies because I don't, I, I don't even like to ask people to do this, but with insecure managers and spe- specifically, what research shows works is flattery and actually calming their mm. ego. Now, do I like to tell people, "Oh, your boss who's making your life miserable, go ahead like pay them compliments." Like, no, that's I hate having even to say that, but we know it works. And so, I think finding in if you don't feel comfortable paying compliments to someone who's who's really being awful to you, I get it. Um, and they have to be genuine. I, I should mention that. If someone, if you have a boss who's terribly indecisive because they're insecure, you can't say, you have great decision-making skills, right? You have to really find something they do well. Um, but if you don't feel comfortable doing that, there's other ways to sort of demonstrate that you're not. An ally, and one of the things that happens in any of the the archetypes, but particularly with the insecure manager, is it starts to become polarizing. Right? They're they're insecure. I'm confident. They're passive aggressive. I'm straightforward. They're pessimist. I'm an optimist. And you really have to watch not to do that because the more you do that, the further you're pushing them away. The further you're making them feel bad. So finding ways to show that you're an ally. Find something that really matters to them. Can you, can you do that thing, right? Can you help them have a win on that? Um, can you use the word we more often than I when you're talking about your work together? You know, anything. And, and if you want to be a little bit more Machiavellian about it, there's also research that shows, especially with abusive supervisors, that if you change the, you can change the power dynamic a little bit by actually reminding them, not directly, but in subtle ways that you, they need you. So you might have an area of expertise that they don't have or skill that no one else on the team has, or you can develop a skill that no one else on the team has. And something about switching that balance of power tends to tone down their abusiveness because they then realize they need you. And so I think ultimately you're just trying to change the dynamic. I wish I could say, "Don't, don't pay any mind to your insecure boss, that's their problem not yours you don't have to do anything just con- go about doing your job and that's an option of course that's an option with any difficult person but ultimately when you think about what you really want i'm guessing it's less stress in interacting with that person you want them to stop micromanaging you or second guessing you or telling you not to socialize with your colleagues and if you if that's really ultimately your goal it's worthwhile to take some at least some small yeah. steps to try to shift the dynamic
1: we're almost out of time. Amy, I'm, I'm, um, I'm always inspired by our conversations. I, 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 this I fun-
0: is so enjoyable. I, I, <laughs> I feel like we've been talking for five minutes. This is, <laughs> yeah, this is great.
1: I think the, the themes of workplace dynamics and the reason why people are saying to me things don't feel the same is because fundamentally their relationships at work have been disrupted and they haven't learned of new ways to build relationships in better ways. You know, we were in a, an accident before of being in the office five days a week. And the mistake we can make is thinking that was the only way to build relations. And the reason why your work and this conversation is so valuable is because it forces us to reimagine situations. And, and look, you've provide, you provide incredible lighthouses in the storm of saying, try this, try this. Sometimes when you're in a difficult people situation just knowing where you can get advice is actually the first thing If knowing what you should be thinking of is, is the first thing. So it's in, so incredibly helpful. And look, you know, I've loved, loved, loved catching up and having a conversation with you today.
0: Yeah, me too. This is, and this is such a, you, you're, you've taken such a broad sort of, not broad, but sort of high level view on this topic that I think it just, I talk about interpersonal interactions all the time. I'm always talking about sort of dyads. And what I love about this conversation and your insights have been, it's about, well, how do these relationships affect the broader world of work and, and vice versa? How does, the, how does culture and the way we work impact those relationships? So uh, thank you for, for pushing up my thinking and, and for the really fun conversation.
1: Thank you to Amy. Amy's mentioned a few things along the way. There, she mentioned that Harvard study, and I've I've put a link to that. That's been quite heavily mentioned in the uh, in the newsletter over the last couple of weeks. You can subscribe to the newsletter by following the link in the show notes, and I've also given a link to Amy's book and to a couple of the other things she mentioned along the way. You find that all in the show notes. I'm so grateful to the conversation with Amy and and the, I, I guess the provocations she provided, the learning she provided along the way. Um, so listen, I've got a few more fascinating discussions that I've lined up over the next few weeks to really sort of move this on, to have a discussion about whether work is less of a, a positive deal in people's lives than it has been in the past. Uh, The importance of human interactions and how we might seek to improve them, where that leaves ideas of creativity in the workplace, especially in the context of artificial intelligence, hopefully some brilliant discussions coming up over the next few weeks. As ever, if you want to get a hold of me, you can always contact me on social media or via the newsletter on the website, the website's Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. I've been Bruce Daisley. I'm so grateful for your company every time. Thank you so much. Speak to you next time.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better?